listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here's your host, Ed McGrogan. October 17th, Monday here in New York. This is the Tennis.com podcast. Ed McGrogan here with Pete Bodo, Richard Pagliaro. We're going to talk about Shanghai, which just ended, um, and kind of really just touch on you know, both tours as they stand now. We're moving to the realistically the home stretch of the year. Um, Pete, you're kind of dozing off there. I don't, I don't know. How the, I don't know if the season's a little too long for you. I'm not going to. Well, it's certainly a little too long for Rafa and those guys, I think, from what they've been saying. But it looks like, and now it appears like maybe they're not that uh, wedded to that idea, Richard. I don't know what you've heard, but it seems like you, you don't know what these guys are coming or going. They're saying they're going to have a big meeting and they're going to try to change the calendar. Then they're saying, no, the meeting's off. It's not going to happen. What's going on? I think just trying to get everybody first in one room is what they kind of got to do instead of talking through the media or talking through. They have to all sit down and sit together. But I think think it goes back to what we said a few weeks ago is that look everybody doesn't have the same agenda a lot of it depends on who you are and where you reside in the rankings and I think the top guys understandably want a break because they're the ones playing so deep into the draws and they're the ones that are you know have the cloud and the drawing power but if you're not a top guy you know you want more tournaments you want more jobs and also there's a little bit of sort of undercutting the statement when you see a lot of these guys already booked XOs in, you know, November, December. So it's like, yeah, you want the downtime, but what are you going to do with we it? Got, are you really uh, going to rest and recover? Are you going to go out and, you know, play XOs in South America? <laughs> well, now you're saying actually just a second ago that, uh, you know, the, the WTA essentially is going to be over next week. And if you, I think many people would really like to see the ATP sort of adopt that, that really that same schedule there. I mean, would you... Uh, you, you, I know, Pete, have talked a lot about the tour, about tennis in general, as being not just one season. It's it's not a cohesive calendar. It's an interval year. sport. Yeah. So you know, but saying that, do you do you uh, do you think about the shortened season like? Like, if it was like the WTA, would you support that, like how it is now? I think like the WTA, what I do think also, as much as I say that tennis is an interval sport, I also believe people need a break. And they especially need a break around the holidays at the end of the year because it is there is a sense of finality at the end of the year and, if, and the sense of starting over in a new year. I hate this thing where basically Pete Sampras made the good point, like some of his best years, he woke up and worked to, oh, my God, i got to go to Australia. Again, I just, you know, just did the heavy lifting, won two grand slams, I'm number one, now i got to go and grind it out all over again. So I kind of sympathize with that, but I also think that, you know, the number of matches these guys are playing, I wouldn't blame anything on that, frankly. I mean, I think just for the sake of maybe making a better game, you could have that. Yeah. What about the anticipation from a fan perspective? Like my friends who are baseball junkies, they're like, hey, you get that winter, the hot stove league, and you look forward to it, whereas with tennis, sometimes the casual fan doesn't know where it begins, where it ends, where the buildup is. Do you buy into that, or you think that's that's really my thing? I mean, is is I do try to look at this from a fan's perspective. I mean, that's how I got into the game, and right. then it's. It, but it it's like you said. There's it's like what they always talk about about the Davis Cup. The champions are to defend the title like a month after they win it, or so. There, there, you know, there isn't that sort of anticipation like you're talking about. So, but you know. These things are, I think, as we're seeing with tennis and how that's not coming together. We're talking, you also have the NBA lockout going on now for like 150 days. Like these things don't, these things never happen overnight and they are take, you know, they're usually, 
seeming like a years-long type of process. Especially because so. they do the schedules in advance, so it's not like, hey, they could get together in Shanghai you know, tomorrow and then impact the schedule for 2012. It's already done. Yeah. You know? The real problem, though, is going to be, once again, that these tournaments are all owned by people. They have a, a, an, an inv- a huge investment sure. stake, multi-million dollars. You're going to have to buy these people out. That is you know, tens and maybe hundreds of millions of dollars right, to like, get the calendar Yeah, straight. like Quebec City is not a big term in the grand scheme of things, but to the, the people who own it. It's, it's like owned. You could put a value yeah. on it. You could yeah. certainly put a monetary value on it. And, and so unless they're willing to buy and I'm not even sure they could get away with buying them out, legally speaking. I mean, you know, so anyway, it gets into a whole can of worms. But even if they wanted to shorten the season, it's just a very, very tough thing to do. And then there's a the question of the Adam Helfand successor. Who, what, if it's going to be someone from within, you know, are they going to be inclined to shorten it further? Or, or what's that stand? How's that going to play out? It's been pretty silent on that front for a while of, of who's going to end up taking it. I know a couple names tossed around, Crycheck even possibly, but uh, that's you're right. That's that's all to be seen. So, um, but I think overall we went from a, like a little bit of murmurings, like "Hey, we need an independent players union" to sort of, "Well, we got to kind of sort of work within the system." I mean, that, yeah. at least that's the impression I have from yeah. reading like, some of the statements. And you got to believe Andy Murray at this point is not going to be complaining about having to play right. too much in the fall, which I guess brings us to Shanghai. Yeah, yeah. Murray's so, like, let's just play in Shanghai. Let's play right, in let's, Asia. Let's, let's go to keep the Asian Hong, swing whatever Asian countries left. Right. Yeah. Um, so he's... Yeah, he just wins his third tournament in three weeks, um, the biggest one of the bunch here at, at the Masters in Shanghai. He was a defending champion last year. Um, you know, I put a poll on the site talking about does the you know does this recent run sort of change your opinion of him in in any way shape or form by him as a Grand Slam contender? That's really the big question. But I think less about that is I I think how this shapes up for Murray is these ATP World Tour finals in London presented a pretty big opportunity for him because he hasn't won that. It is it, it is a you know a measuring stick that and he will get the big guys. All the big names can't really unless they pull out escape from there. But I, I would also say that if he if he doesn't uh, win that tournament, I think that's kind of a, just another step back from. I think he's, I think he's put himself in the position where it's a slam, but not being a slam. It is a big tournament for him, and I think the rest of the fall really is actually. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I think with Murray, the funny thing is, to me, my my big thing with Murray is Nadal. That's you know, after he's lost. Lost a Grand Slam final in Australia to Djokovic. We've seen what Djokovic had subsequently made that soften the blow of that because Murray played a horrible match and, and it got crushed. But the way no, but Djokovic later, you know, sort of made that seem more acceptable. But then he loses to Nadal in the next three Grand Slam semis and basically gets two sets, I believe, in three matches. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's a big thing for him. He's he's now with this last one. I think he's five and thirteen, or maybe four and thirteen against Nadal head to head, which is not very good. So now his chance of winning, I think he could beat Federer and Djokovic back-to-back to win a Grand Slam title, never mind if one of those guys loses earlier. His big problem, I think, has been to date that he's always got to do a Nadal plus one of those guys, and he just doesn't have the horsepower for that. That's a good point. And also the Nadal that he tends to face in the Masters series usually isn't the same Nadal he runs into in the majors, and that's right. a problem. That's true. But uh, it's good for Murray, by the sure, way. I think that he sure. beats Nadal in Tokyo. And he didn't get a chance to beat him in Shanghai because Nadal loses early. But I think Murray picks up a little bit of psychological lift because he gets that win over over Nadal, and maybe it's time to hit the reset. Yeah, button. and like Murray himself said after Shanghai, look, it's now that you got to take this and apply it to the three out of five set matches where, you know, it's not a fitness thing. I think it's sometimes more of an emotional and a game challenge. I saw a great stat about the master this year's Master Series tournaments, which 
as you know, have been dominated by Nadal as the runner-up, Djokovic winning most of them. But the stat was that only six players have even been finalists this entire year in a uh, in a Masters Series final. You have those two, Murray, of course, now Marty Fish, Ferrer. But it's you know it's the top heaviest of the top heavy years here. Um, and, and I mean, just that other stat where Ferrer has never won a match. I mean, Ferrer's a damn good player to never win a match. It shows you how. How that's, challenging that's gonna, that's it gonna is, be you know? that's gonna be his grand slam title when he wins like right. Monte Carlo or so something. Another, he's another Davidenko right. <laughs> or another right. Lubicic. Yeah. Yeah, I must say, I don't know. I you know, look, the guy is great. He fights like the devil, you know, he does he does a really good job. You don't want to take anything away from him, but at one point you gotta at some point you say, Look, you gotta win one of these. You know, you just gotta do it, find a way to do it. This, you know, constant bridesmaid thing, it's kind of a it's almost weird, I think, you know, given how good he is and how well he plays for him not to have broken through and gotten one of these. It's kind of a surprise to me. Yeah. There are some good other stories too from Shanghai was um Nishikori in in particular was the was the big um you know, undercard story there, getting to the semifinals. Um this bounce back year and it was I think the first time I still remembered, oh, he's with you know Brad Gilbert now, and, and he has been since the start of the year, and and maybe you know looking for he's still incredibly young, and, and you never know that that uh, that potential could really be harnessed going forward. That's that's a pretty big result, I think, going forward for next year for him. Boy, wait, Joe, he looked pretty bad against Murray, though. I yeah, thought. I mean, it was like he just had nothing. I mean, granted, he's tired and he's a kid, but you know, I don't know. He just his lack of firepower, lack of a, lack of a good serve, a big serve. And and then of course Murray's returning ability in that match it was it was it was a real blowout. I mean I felt bad for Nishikori. I I hope he gets stronger, which is I think what Gilbert has been saying he needs to do. He has plenty. Yeah, he's got the room to to bulk and up. And he has a sure. reputation of being a worker that he'll really do what they ask him to do. So you know that's a that's a plus. But I think you're right that strength disparity could could be an issue long term. On the um, you know on the other tour WTA this this past week couple it's really just a couple small events going into next week's WTA championships which are in do either of you two know in Istanbul Istanbul, in Istanbul sure. this year yes where is Istanbul I'm a stupid American uh, right I think it's <laughs> west of Zukan Park <laughs> there you go uh, very, yes very well uh, so they'll be occupying Istanbul in, in a week or two um, you know both of the Williams sisters are are done this year. Um, Kim Kleisters, of course, has been done for a few months. Is there uh, WT championships? Give me uh, give me the reason to watch this one. Anybody? I'm just begging you. <laughs> you really I know. Put it this way. I know you again. mentioned. We got to mention her. I know you mentioned Wozniacki here. And um, you think she's closer to a major than Murray? If you had to. Pick them, one of them. Who do you think's going to break through first? I would, I would say. Mur- I mean, I would say. I, I would be absolutely shocked if Murray doesn't win a major. But I said the eventually. same. I, I said the same. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. I would say the same. I said the same thing about Roddick. I would, I would have bet anything on that, that he would have won number two, but it just hadn't happened. But, um, you know, yeah. Wozniacki. You know, look, she hasn't won a tournament. Uh, other than New Haven, which is a gimme for her, she's yeah, won like four times. Sure. The only other, the, the, she's she's only won a couple of other tournaments, and her last tournament, she's won exactly one tournament, New Haven, since she won at home in Copenhagen on a hard court in the clay court season, whatever. So, but I mean, you know, that's 
that's a shocking record, I think, for a player who's number one. I mean, look, if you, I can see being a slamless number one, especially if you're a youngster like her. And, and you know, number one is number one. You accumulate the points to get to be number one. There's no question about deserving or not deserving. But the fact that she's number one and is not, not even winning, like, premier events now or, you know, just the second rate of events, uh, sub-slam events, is, is, is a little right, surprising. Especially during a time where Kleisters and Serena have kind of drifted in and out. And Kvitova, you know, although she obviously picked it up last week, you know, she had that lapse after winning. Wimbledon where she wasn't going deep and Lee Na was kind of in and out so you thought that would be the time that she or someone would step up. Well, I think is pretty much assured of the of the uh, of ending the year number one as well there too. So yeah, Azarenka ran out of steam there. I was a little yeah. bit disappointing to see her run out of steam. I'm excited to see Kvitova make the resurgence and also leading into that Fed Cup final to see. I mean, if she was able to lead them past Russia, I mean, she she's had a hell of a year, you know. And sure, she's had lapses at times where she disappeared, but She's also stepped up big time, and I'd really like to see how she how she handles that. I wouldn't discount her in Istanbul because you know no. she she had that deer in the headlights look after once after she won Wimbledon. Right. She was a, she was a shy you know shy young lady basically, and and all of a sudden all this attention, all this fame. I mean, I think I think it really kind of knocked her for a loop, understandably. Sure. And if she's coming, you know, if she's on her way back now, she did she did pretty well. Um, over, I, I think it was in Beijing, uh, got the, I think, semis or maybe in Tokyo, whatever. So she's played okay. And then she won last week. So, you know, she's, she's positioned herself pretty well. Look, who, who, who does she have to beat at Istanbul? Right. And she's the one player in the field where you know she's not served challenge. Like, you know it's not going to be 10 double fall. You know she can really dictate right. what to serve. It's a big advantage in women's tennis. I was thinking one last thing here. You mentioned Fed Cup, and I... And I one player who we didn't see in this whole Asian swing was Del Potro, who who made a point that he was going to pass on this part of the calendar, play for Davis Cup. Argentina is in the final against Spain, and I and I'm just wondering, you know, kind of aloud. We saw what um, we saw what Djokovic did last year with with Davis Cup, and he was coming off of a of a year where he's just kind of meandering through the calendar, the luster of his. One Grand Slam title have kind of worn off by now, and you know, for to be away against Spain, which is, I mean, with Nadal there, it's a huge pro to favorite. If Del Potro, um, I'm kind of looking forward to Del Potro, what what that could mean for next year for him, because I, with all the discussion about the top heaviness of the tour, um, he's been pretty much the one guy who has been able to really penetrate that over the past few years. Um, just let me, what do you think about Del Potro? You know. He's still very young, but just kind of his prospects for going forward for him a little bit. I, I love his game. I mean, I think he's a guy, I think you're exactly right, that we sometimes tend to overlook him when talking about the top four. He hasn't matched up well with Djokovic yet, but those other guys, he can beat them, and he has beaten them, and he's beaten them in big spots. And I think his mind seems to have settled a little. I got the feeling there was some little lingering sort of you know indecisiveness about his wrist about his body and i get the feeling now that he's kind of past that that he feels secure and if he's healthy and confident i mean this guy could play with anybody there's no no question i've, got, I've kind of gone the other way a little bit on him in a sense of watching him at the open and stuff i was a little bit disappointed by you know in a sense he's a very one-dimensional player sure you know he plays very sure. much as set pieces and granted if he's clubbing the ball and and, and you know tagging it then you know what are you going to do there's not much you can do actually i what i think is going to be interesting so i mean i i think uh, but I, I would say that's also a bonus in that he could take the racket out of your hands. I no, mean, no, he can, absolutely. I mean, he takes you out of the equation if he's on, if he's on, you know. Yeah, you know, and he certainly has handled guys who, who's, 
who nobody's taking a racket out of the hands of. You know, Nadali's handled sure. Nadal very well. You know, uh, yeah, that bad loss to Simone at the Open, I guess. But what, what's going to be interesting to me with the Davis Cup final there is Nadal's going to be under a lot of pressure. You know, he's he's had a rough year. I, I'm not liking the way he's he's acted lately in terms of he just seems kind of really bummed out by himself. Mm-hmm. He seems like, you know, he keeps talking about how much harder he needs to work, which I think is baloney. There is a lot of pressure, and I think you're right now that you mentioned that. Especially uh, at home soil, you know, you yeah. expected to win that match on quite, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is rare that the Davis and Fed Cups register on the on that big grand scale of, you know, of how the player did this year. It, it's Some people think it's kind of inconsequential, but if Nadal were to actually not win his two singles matches on clay at home, then you could just see another scoop of, you know, what's yeah. wrong with him coming on here. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I, th- th- it's, it's going to be tougher because, look, now Bandian's played him well, too, on various occasions. Sure. And Del Potro, of course, if he's if he's really feeling it and hitting the ball hard, I mean, he, he can, as Richard says, take the you know take the racket out of your hand. So it's going to be it's going to be a kind of an interesting final. Um, yeah. I think you hit a good point with Nadal, though, because I agreed with him completely after the Open final, where he said, "Look, I did not get any free points off my serve, and you can't play Djokovic with no." Fr-. And I thought, hey, that's a great point. He didn't serve well pretty much the whole summer. If he can get that back, but now there seems to be a malaise, you know, losing the seven finals and all that. That maybe it's more than just. Hey, you got to get reconnect with that serve. They play a little more aggressive. The know? humility factor sure. has grown and grown with him, which in a way you love him because he's a humble guy sure. and he's transparent. He really tells you what he's thinking. There's still that Wimbledon press conference was an absolute masterpiece of of honest self examination, self criticism. But then at some point you just get to the point where you know a little too much that you talk yourself into being less of a player than right. you really are. I'd almost like to see a little bit of arrogance or anger or something creep into there to say you know I'm you know. Darn it, I'm not going to take it anymore. That, right. so, because it's a year ago, this guy was dominating. The, this guy's three of the four. Three slams, eight, you know, and, you know, and everyone's talking about the greatest yeah. player ever. Sure. Yep. Yeah. That's a, I guess there is a lot more to look forward to this year than we you know, give ourselves credit for. But anyways. Yeah, one more Masters, right? Yeah, we do have one more Masters in Paris. And um, you know, next week, like we said, WTA Championships in Fair Turkey. And we will be back for the next podcast then. Pete Bodo, Richard Pagliaro, I am Ed McGrogan. Thanks for listening. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.